Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Transitioning from mindfulness of breathing in the belly to mindfulness of breathing in the nostrils. As the course together goes on, I'm going to ask you just to choose what your favorite location is, and that's going to be the place you're going to work for the next few years. Um, So I encourage you to go back and forth, belly and nostrils, and then decide which one you like best. When you bring attention to the belly, one of the benefits is there's more sensation in the belly to pay attention to. And if you're someone who's really heady uh, and not so in your body, the belly is, I would say, the the first choice for where to uh, meditate, for where to anchor your attention. Um, If you're somebody who, when you sit, you can tune into the breath pretty quickly um, and you feel somewhat stable as you're sitting, then the nostrils are a really good choice. And one of the things you'll notice breathing in the nostrils is that there's a lot less sensation when your breath gets relaxed than when you pay attention to your breath in your belly. There's less and less movement. So it can actually be somewhat easier to concentrate on your breath in your nostrils than your breath in your belly. And I use the term concentration, meaning kind of sustained attention. When the Buddha talks about mindfulness practice, there are two terms that get used. One is the initial application of attention, and the other is sustained application. So, I think we all can intuit now what that means. A lot of people can find that initial application, like, oh, breath, nostrils, there, and then they're gone. Then they floated away or been shipwrecked, and then they come back again. So it's really important to remember that we want both these pieces to be cultivated, the initial application and then sustained application. One of the ways the Buddha talked about this is um, through an analogy of polishing a bowl. You take a cloth and you place it on the bowl and that's the initial application. And then you start to rub the bowl with the cloth and if you lose contact 
then you place it back again and you keep going. So that's a nice kind of metaphor to, to think about. So there's the initial application of the cloth on the bowl and then there's the sustained application. And for some of us, we're just working on the initial application because uh, with certain mental states or certain emotional patterns, it's hard to even get the initial application because we have so much habit energy around avoiding what's unpleasant. Or some of us don't even know we have a body or a body that's breathing. Another image that's often used for teaching this is uh, the image of a bird taking off for flight. How when you watch a large bird, like a heron or something, getting ready to fly, it's very clunky at the beginning and makes a lot of noise. And then as soon as it gets lift, it's so elegant. And doesn't really have much to do other than to discover heat patterns in the atmosphere. Um, Updraft. Another image that the Buddha uses is a bee. A bee approaches a flower, which is the initial application, and then it circles the flower again and again and again, and then over time it just goes right into the flower and stays in that environment and hangs in there. And that's really what we're trying to cultivate. We're trying to convince our habitual patterns of personality that also exist in our body. Your personality is not just like in your head somewhere. That it's okay to hang in there for a while. We want to hang in there with what we're experiencing. So you put your attention in the nostrils and you just hang in there and you line up your attention with your breathing body. That's what we're trying to do. Line up the attention with the breathing body. And then get really interested and really curious about the process. Dressing my kids in the wintertime is like this. You put on a glove, you turn around for one second to get a boot, and they're already in another room. And if they feel you getting worked up, then you're not going to school that morning. There's no way. Um, So our process is to just uh, keep cultivating calmness with what's going on so that we can de-escalate tension in the conditions. And this is a great training for parenting. And then you can become interested in what you're learning about yourself as you dress your four-year-old. Does anybody here have kids? Does anybody here dress them? Does anybody here live in the Northern Hemisphere? Yeah, so half the year, it's it's really a hell realm sometimes getting out the door. So now we have a new way of thinking about mindfulness. 
The first two days, I was defining mindfulness as paying attention. Now we're doing something else. We're not just paying attention to what's happening in our bodies and minds. Now we're paying attention to the way we're paying attention. So we're paying attention to the subjective experience of paying attention. Does your attention get vague? Does it waver? When you're uncomfortable, what happens to your motivation? When you get uncomfortable, how does your attitude change? Can you notice how you can have 10 seconds of peace followed by 10 seconds of discomfort and go from thinking you're a fantastic spiritual person to thinking about how you're never going to meditate ever again when this course is over. (laughs) This isn't for me. I'm an ultra runner. (laughs) Or whatever your thing is. I hope no one's an ultra runner. Actually, in a course that I taught in England last year, we had someone in the course who was an ultra runner. It was really interesting to hear him talk about meditation from the perspective of, of running. He would say, you know, when I do ultra running, these are like three-day runs in mountains. He's like, it's exactly like meditation, except we're on painkillers the whole time. (laughs) It's like a great sport. So, by definition, an open mind is an unassuming mind. It's It's a beginner's mind. And that's the attitude that we want to have when we're working with people, but it's also the attitude that we want to help instill in the people we're working with. And that can be a shift for some of you who have a lot of psychology training, where sometimes we're trying to figure out a problem or get the right diagnosis dialed in. Here we're trying to cultivate an attitude where we're uh, helping them have a beginner's mind towards their moment-to-moment experience. One of the things that you might notice as you're paying attention to your breath is how much time you spend wanting things to be a certain way. Sometimes if we really want something strongly and it doesn't happen, we're so disappointed. Did I just describe your month? (laughs) And I'm going to suggest to you that this happens through the whole meditation practice. Meditation is a way of learning how to tolerate frustration. It's one way of thinking about it. And living through this lens of expectation really limits what can happen and what is happening. Sometimes there are blessings all over the place that we miss because of our expectations. Our window's just too narrow. So when you're sitting, try and trust the process and be present with what's happening. And this is useful in life too, 
is just to learn what it's like to let go of expectation in the moment, fast, coming back to the breath. Or as Val keeps saying, which it's like really sinking in for me, is this is the new now. Actually, she said it differently. She said, this is the new now now. This is the new now now. And expectations can really derail our relationships. What kills relationships? Expectations. Sometimes we expect others to continue treating us badly. And we don't even allow them to change. And we have so many beliefs about them, it really trips us up and becomes hard for us to relate. And the solution, of course, is not to have no expectations. That would be way too idealistic. I'm sure there are some people who've, have you ever tried this? I'm just going to have no expectations. (laughs) That's the conditions for a fight. Our job as meditators is just to recognize when expectations present. I remember teaching mindfulness to someone who had such intense back pain that um, in his early 20s, he spent almost three years in bed. Um, And um, when we started practicing together, he was so scared. He looked, he he was a man that his face looked like just a little boy. He was so worried. Um, Do you know how some people's worry manifests as like age in their face? But some people's fright goes the other way, where they're just like, they haven't grown up yet. um, Because they're just in a, like, it's like they froze at a certain age or something. And um, so when we started to do mindfulness of breathing, He was so scared that if he made contact with his breath, that it would startle the pain in his lower back and set it all off again. So I would say to him, "Um, what are you feeling right now? Let's aim our attention at the breath and just allow sensations to emerge. And be like, it's so painful. It's so painful. But he said it, but there was no moves in his body to show me that there was any pain. So I said to him, I've worked with a lot of people with pain and their body moves or there's a jump or there's a jolt or I can see something electric and I don't see that. And he's like, well, there's no, there's no pain right now, but there, there could be pain. And that was the opening, to start to see that, right? That he has this idea that this is painful, but when he looks more closely, there's no pain there. There's the fear of the pain there. So we need to kind of honor the fear of the pain there and stay with it. If there was tremendous pain there, maybe we would do something different. But there wasn't any pain there. There was the expectation of the, of the pain there. And I remember having this happen to me 
one time I went on a retreat and I didn't read that the retreat goes through a full moon and so we would be sitting through the night on the full moon. <laughs> and so, you know, dinner came and then they reminded everyone, you know, uh, we'll have a light dinner tonight and then here's how the schedule goes and we'll be sitting the regular 45 minutes of sitting, 45 minutes of walking um, through until the sunrise. And I thought, what? I did not sign up for this. And I just, I was ready to go pack my bags. And so I asked the teacher if I could talk to them. And the teacher just said, just go breath by breath. Just go one breath at a time. And that's what I did. And like lots of hallucinating, <laughs> all kinds of stuff. Um, and also, if you go one breath at a time, you can just aim for this moment and allow this moment to unfold. And just to see the disparity between all of my ideas about sleep and not sleep and what will happen to me. And actually what was happening in the moment. was a, It's an incredible thing to work on. So... Um, if we have a lot of over-involvement with preoccupation or expectation, then we're not here. And the same is true when you work with people. You need to drop your expectation of how you think they should heal and how you think they should be. Um, so here's my suggestion to you. Expect anything. Flip it around. Just expect anything. Expect anything to happen at any time. So that our training is a training in learn how to respond to anything. And how do you do that? You have to track your thinking when you're meditating. You have to track your thinking enough to know when expectation's there and then aim for your body again. You don't have to analyze your expectations. You don't have to uh, study the content of them. You can just say, do I need to be thinking about this right now? And take some power out of your thoughts. Once upon a time, there was an old farmer who had a large pasture and three kids and he was dying and he said to his three kids uh, when I die this field that I farmed my whole life uh, is going to be yours this is your field and um, I've never told you this but in the field I've buried a treasure for you so when I die it's yours. And not long later he died and uh, it was winter time and so uh, the kids talked together about when spring comes we're going to have to go through this field. I wonder if he left a map somewhere which he didn't or if there's some kind of clue to how we can find this treasure. And um, when spring came they went out with shovels this was before tractors 
um, and they started digging up the field and couldn't find the treasure. So they quit, uh, waited a month, and then as the season changed, closer to solstice, they went out again, started digging up the field, looked everywhere, circumference and the center, kind of by a special tree, couldn't find it. Waited another month. Went back what they determined would be the last time. And when they went out this last time, the whole field was blooming. And this was the treasure. This was the treasure. Best crop of vegetables they ever had. So, our job is to cultivate the field. That's the treasure. So, you don't necessarily need to figure out why you have the expectations you have. You don't need to figure out... uh, why you can't stay connected to the breath, why it's the same thought over and over. Instead, we just keep staying with the practice. And that's kind of been the theme of the week, I think, is just staying with the practice and learning from the practice so that your practice becomes your teacher. A Zen teacher named Shinra Suzuki, who died in the early 70s, he says, don't worry about enlightenment. Enlightenment is easy. Just do the practice without seeking anything. Don't worry about trying to get somewhere. But isn't that the hardest thing? Isn't it the hardest thing to not want a result? We always want something. So the last thing I want to say is um, one helpful way of beginning to get closer to this experience of breathing in and breathing out is a practice that I like to call aim and allow. That's my version of initial and sustained application. Aim and allow. It's a bit of a softer interpretation of that. So you aim your attention at the anchor, and then you allow. If the anchor is your breathing, which is what we've learned so far, you allow breathing to harmonize with what's there. If your anchor is sound, you allow sound. Tomorrow, our theme is going to be working with strong sensations in the body and how to work with intensity how to work more with edge states. How do you work with edge states? Aim and allow. We're going to aim our attention to the vicinity, and then we're going to allow mental states, physical states, unpleasantness, irritability to emerge in a spacious field and change. What's the edge state? What's an edge state? A state where you feel at your edge. Yeah. Have you had one of those? Yeah. <laughs> this morning. <laughs> yeah. 
Just aim and allow. Know what's there and allow it to happen. So, I want to switch gears and I want to just um, do a little exercise to kind of demonstrate how all this comes together. Then we'll have a break and then um, Christy is going to offer some practices for kids, stuff that she does with kids. And then in the afternoon, you're going to practice teaching the mindfulness um, um, in the nostrils um, to a larger group. So we're going to make the groups a little bit bigger this afternoon. Um, so before I end, are there any questions or comments, observations about what we just explored? Yeah. It's interesting how you said choose your anchor, you know, your belly breath or your nostrils. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sort of how you sort of a different kind of person will pick a different method. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything wrong with just keeping to use both? Both practices, belly breathing. Like at the same time? No. In different sessions? Well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing anything. Like, you can do anything you want. But I would suggest that if you really want to learn how those practices deepen over time, you pick one for five years. And don't change it. Because there are landscapes and levels of concentration and stillness that you can't see until you get there. And then you get there and you're like, oh, there's this whole other thing here to explore. And then when you're there, you're like, oh, and look, there's also this other grove over here that I can check out. So for example, when you first start working with either one, the tendency is to get really concentrated on surfaces, as I talked about yesterday. But over time, when your breath gets really quiet in your nostrils, you stop feeling it in your nostrils and you start to feel it in the aperture of the nostril, and then eventually you actually start to feel it on your upper lip. Your breath is so quiet, it's not even in your body anymore. So that whole process, for example, you can't feel if you then switch. And then also the switching sometimes happens just because you get bored. And sometimes the boredom is like a threshold you have to go through with a technique also. I feel this when Val's teaching. Like sometimes we're doing a practice and I'm like, okay, my body feels ready now to like do some. Remember the first day when we were doing like that jumping thing? And I was like, okay, I'm ready for, like is she going to hand out the skipping rope? or? Um, but then you cross the threshold, and then it starts getting really, really interesting. Yeah. The, the composer John Cage says, um, if you listen to a piece of music and you don't like it, listen for five minutes longer. And if you still don't like it, listen for five minutes longer. <laughs> I would say, if you don't like a person, pay attention for five more minutes. Um, so you talked about, um, in our practice, 
when we notice expectation, you know, mm-hmm. working to, to let that go in the moment. Yeah. And then you followed that up with, but it's not realistic to not have expectations in our life. Yeah. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about, or maybe give some examples of kind of your practice off the cushion and sort of in life when, yeah. you know, how do you monitor that expectation? Yes. Let it go, not with So on the one hand is burdened with expectation. And on the other hand is idealism of I'm going to have no expectation, which is a lot of expectation. So I'm defining the middle path between those as expect anything. Expect anything to happen. And so what I mean by that is beginner's mind, not knowing mind. Like what are we training in meditation? We're training how to, how to have a not knowing mind. So what I mean by that is um, sometimes when someone's speaking to me, I very, very quickly kind of have a sense. Let's say um, somebody is coming to me with a lot of anxiety. Um, I, I really can get a sense quite quickly of what's going on for them. And I start getting ideas about things I want to do with them to help them. And then I check that in myself. And I'm like, okay, I've got some ideas, but I'm just going to kind of keep it over here. I'm not saying that's bad. It's just I'm going to keep it over here, and I'm going to keep staying with them and just see what happens. So it's this attitude of being interested in what's happening. And, I mean, another example I can give is... um, you know, my, my four-year-old son has autism, and so he, he sometimes doesn't communicate um, with words the way that uh, another kid his age will communicate. So I sometimes have to, like, drop my idea of what's going on in the moment and try to pay attention to his body language to understand what it is he's needing in the moment. So I have to come at it with a beginner's mind, with no expectation. Um, So I gave the example yesterday, I think, of us doing this work around um, getting backup. Do you remember that? Like getting backup came from realizing, like, he's pushed his brother over. His brother's like 18 months, but really strong. So he knocks his brother over, and for three months, Karina and I are trying to figure out, like, how do we get some like ideas to change his behavior? Because with any four-year-old, you can get some really good behavior strategies, right? So we're like getting all these really good ideas. Nothing works. None of that works for him because he doesn't understand action consequence, right? So instead, we have to drop all that and get inside his imagination. What does he need? Because behavior is a function of a need. So what's the need? And his need is backup. He needs backup. So that's how we came up with this idea of backup. So whether it's with your children or the people you're working with or your own internal state, beginner's mind is a compassionate but also a political uh, uh, ground that we stand on to not rely on our bias 
and our assumptions. Does that make sense? It's I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's needed. Yeah. If, if, if I'm working with, like, let's say I came here to University of Toronto and someone said, would you teach mindfulness of breathing to a group of students? I would start in the belly. Because this would be a group of people who are primarily in their head, right? They're learning how to juggle thoughts and they're quite stressed about deadlines and so on. So never mind their parents and expectations of their parents. Um, so I would uh, start with mindfulness of breathing to keep it really physical. Would that also work for people that have like the slows and diaphragm and stuff like that? You mentioned that people that yeah. have yeah. strong yeah. body sensations. Yeah. Uh, it depends. Because if, if, if they have a lot of like, if you know, for example, that they're suffering from like, I don't know, maybe still ha someone has some trauma around a C-section. I probably wouldn't start with mindfulness of breathing in the belly. Maybe I'd start in the nostrils. Yeah. So that's why I'm saying you choose, um, intuit it, get a check-in, and you might have to switch it. But there are two places that are really good to focus on mindfulness of breathing. Nostrils or abdomen. And here's some suggestions as why. But there's not like an absolute blueprint of what you should do. But for those of you who want to deepen the practice, I highly recommend one of those two. So then starting with mindfulness of sound, um, you just really do with people who have anxiety? Or a lot of pain. Oh, okay. yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah. if you were going to teach just a group of meditators that were just coming to learn meditation, you wouldn't necessarily start with that? I almost always start with sounds. Oh, yeah. I feel like it teaches a kind of receptivity that makes transitioning to mindfulness of breathing so easy. I don't know if you felt that this week, but yeah. So that's how, but that's the sequence that I would use. Yeah. I also, you know, I know all of us are living at a culture where we love inventing our own stuff, but it's also good to remember that the sequence that we're talking about is 2,000 years old. <laughs> and so there must be some rhyme and reason why humans have, uh, in many different countries that these teachings have gone to, have maintained this kind of sequence, whether it's in Tibet or Korea or Burma or Thailand or India. Um, you find this, so we'll stick with it. Yes. So, for just to apply it to our own practice, yeah. choosing sound or breath, um, I definitely go back and forth depending on how I'm you know, feeling for the day, but yeah. I think I could benefit more from like, sustaining the stamina yeah. for one. Yeah. Um, is it just personal choice you're starting? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, me personally, I like to start with sound for about five minutes, and then go to breathing. And I like the breath in the nostrils. That's my practice. So whichever one you choose, 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, even in even in one period of, of sitting, you might want to just start with sounds of the space, be in the environment, you know, settle as you feel the posture, and then start to go to the breath. And then stay there. And then stay with it. Aim and allow. Aim and allow. Aim and allow. Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.